you know, politicians do have to think about what we say. And I think the trouble with Twitter, the instantness of it, <laughs> is, is I think there's too many twits might make a twat. Hello, and welcome to the Open Conservative Project, a podcast with me, Sam Colson, and my co-host, Tom Hobson. Good morning, Sam. You all right? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I, it's, it's a little bit it's early another, for you, is it? It's another early one. <laughs> no, I think, I think the thing is, I have got this cold that Sarah Vine wrote about at the weekend in the mail. Right. Um, which really does feel quite a lot like COVID symptoms. I've had it for about, it's coming on for two weeks now, where I've oh. been coughing up my coughing up my guts and uh, I've lost my sense of taste and blah, blah, blah. I have had PCRs and I've had done loads of lateral flows. Everything's negative. I'm, I'm double vaxxed and stuff. So it's not COVID, but bloody hell does it feel like it. Um, mm, it's a bit shit. It's a bit boring, and basically it means that yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm late. I'm losing sleep, but I'm always awake for the podcast, <laughs> which we said we'd start 20 minutes ago, uh, and we didn't quite get there. So, oh well. Anyway, I'm fine. Here How now. are you, Tom? Uh, no, I'm fine. Absolutely fine. No complaints here, to be honest. Bumbling along, it's just a bit early. <laughs> yeah, and I finished my tea already, but never mind. <laughs> um, we've got a few things to talk about today. This is the. Uh, this is the Thursday where after the Wednesday that Keir Starmer gave his conference speech. It is. So this is the end of Labour conference. There'll be a lot of hungover Labour staffers tonight, uh, for, for this morning, sorry, from, you know, revelling last night in, in what seems to be a conference speech that went really well. Should we start by talking about that? Uh, well, I think the first thing to talk about is how long it was. I mean, I listened to the whole thing with a couple of dipping in and out. Mm-hmm. Um... And I was just like, are you not finished yet? Are you not finished yet? Are you not finished yet? But it's very easy to concentrate on it being long mm. and criticise it for being long rather than, you know, criticise what he actually said. Yes. Um, and, I, and I'll admit, little bits, I did switch off because yeah. it just kind of dipped at times. But that's inevitable. I instinctively, I thought it was quite good. Yeah. Um. He didn't just speak to the conference hall, although he kept saying conference. Um, and there were points where you knew he was talking to the voting public. Yeah. yeah. Am I right? I think that's right. I, I, I will I will say, for transparency, I watched, I think, about half of it um, at lunch yesterday. And I didn't, I didn't get a chance to finish it yesterday evening because I, I have a life. But I have seen a lot of reaction. And I, and I did watch a good chunk of it. Um, yeah. I think the length thing is really interesting. Uh, Tom Chivers, uh, who is a science writer primarily, um, who I followed on Twitter for a number of years, he, he writes a lot for um, Unheard and yeah. other places. It used to be BuzzFeed. Anyway, he was saying, because everyone was saying on Twitter yesterday, guys, you know, it's just so long. What are we doing here? And he was like, it's, you know, this is a piece of very serious politics. It's okay that it's over 15 minutes. Like, yes, that's fine. Actually, it, we can deal with that. Like, yes, it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be able to be condensed into a TikTok. You know, like this is a man <laughs> setting out his his vision for the country. I'm okay if that runs to ninety minutes. Like, and I 100 percent agree with that. Like, it's good that he at long after eighteen months has had the and he's and, and he opened his speech with this. Like, it's, it's after eighteen months that he's been able to actually yeah. speak to the country for the first time. Yeah. So yeah, take as much time as you want, and I'm okay that it was a bit long. I mean, I also didn't watch all of it, so maybe it's fine. Maybe 
Maybe that's not didn't necessarily needs to, I don't think you necessarily needed to watch or listen to all of it. You know, if, if you listened to a good chunk of it, you've got a thrust of his mm. approach to politics life and yep. what drives him. And it, it was a lot of what drives him, his background and his thought process that brought him to the point. And I kind of get that because you know, through the entirety of COVID, he was just sidelined because everyone rallied to the flag and he was he was kind of left either having to agree with the government um, or or criticise them and then be criticised for not mm. being supportive in an emergency scenario. So yes. he, he's had a difficult 18 months and this is his first opportunity to, to break from that and speak to all of us. And yeah. I think even Conservative voters wanted to hear what he had to say. Mm. You know, people people have been bemoaning in and out of the party at the lack of opposition. Yes. And this this could mark the break where we we finally think, okay, fine, there is some opposition. I think that's I think that's true. Um, I've got a, I don't know a couple of points to make there. I think, firstly, yes, I agree with your point that it was all it was about him. Which I think is necessary. Um, he's focused a lot on his time as as the deputy prosecutions police, whatever Direction it was. Of public I, prosecutions. Director go, of thought. public prosecutions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I remember the DPP acronym, and I can not remember the words that filled it. Um, he focused a lot on that, which is good. It's the whole law and order thing. It's, yeah, and I, there's and a I, lot of law and order. It's a lot of law and order. Um, and I, I think it's great. It so clearly marks him out against the Corbyn tribe. Um, we'll, yep. we'll talk about the heckling in a minute, perhaps. Um, yes. It really marks him out against that. It, yeah, I, I felt like I knew Keir more as a person. We, uh, we, we've, we have said on this podcast, I think maybe even last week, or maybe a fortnight ago or whatever, but like, we wish he'd just do something or say anything, yes. right? We've made yes. that point. And, and I think, yeah, I think he might have done. I think he might have done or said something. So... <laughs> In terms, yes. of, in terms of very low bars, I think he's cleared it. Um, well, you know, there's a certain beauty to having to low, a low bar. You know, the, the bar is now actually, when you think about it, for next Wednesday for the Prime Minister, quite high. The usual yes. guff won't cut it. Yes. I think, you know what, that's, uh, that is a good point. Um, did you see the Hugo of polling that was done straight after the, the, uh, the speech? Well, I'm pretty sure I sent it to you, Sam. Oh, did you? <laughs> yes, I've seen it. <laughs> uh, maybe it was one of those things I found independently and you will also have to send to me. Um, well, that's, that was fascinating. So I think it was something like 62% of people um, preferred his first, Keir's first conference speech over Boris's 2019 conference speech, his first one as PM. Yeah. Which, is, which is pretty serious because Boris is known as an orator, right? And yeah. I don't think Keir is much of an orator. I don't think he's a very interesting speaker. I watched a few of the jokes he did, and I thought they were, I don't know, they fell pretty flat. And maybe maybe he'd over-rehearsed them or something. The one about my father Possibly. was a toolmaker, in some ways, so was Boris's. You know. Well, I, I actually I thought that was quite good. I did think that was a good line. I mean, the delivery wasn't, yeah, wasn't I mean, the, Boris delivery, but it was a yeah. good line, and it and it and it was also the line where I mean, what's the aim of a conference speech? It's making sure that you have. Those short clips that end up in the one o'clock news yes. or you know the radio bulletins, and I, that was the line I heard on the radio bulletins mm. on my on my journey yesterday. That's interesting. It's interesting they chose that line, which was not a policy announcement or anything. It was a dig at the PM, of which there but, weren't but there weren't kind of what politics is. Oh, is it? I mean, okay. So let, let's come on to the substance of it then. 
so what did he actually announce yesterday in terms of policy? Because this is somewhere where Labour still doesn't have very much to say. It's about actual stuff they would do if they were given the keys, as it were. I can remember one, and I find it interesting that this is the one that sticks out with me, dealing with a, a new mental health um, situation within a month. Mm. That was one policy announcement. You know, we will make sure that anyone who is in a mental health crisis will have a response within a month. Um, and, you know, as a young person, I think it's no surprise that that's kind of stuck in my mind as the one policy announcement, yep. because mental health is such a prevalent problem in our generation. 100%. Um, but you're right, it was light on policy, but that was at least one I remember. That, that is good. And I hadn't even heard that one. I say maybe I need to go away and do my homework, but also I'm coming <laughs> at this today as more of a member of the general public who had a busy day yesterday, didn't actually sit and watch the whole speech. I, I watched more of the speech than probably 95% of the country did. Um, yeah. But I, what's, what's the cut-through? And it seems like the cut-through is the Boris Johnson tool line, which, I, I mean, is kind of funny, I guess. But maybe it would have been, maybe Team Keir would have been happier if the cut-through was a, was a nice, shiny policy. But then I feel like if there were any nice, shiny policies buried in that speech like really, you know, rub out of the hat moments, as it were, then mm. they'd have been the ones to get that cut through. I don't know, like, it, it, it still I, feels I, like, yes, they're finding their feet, but also after 18 months, do you not have some idea of what you want to do with the country? Do you not have more policy? Because that's, that one you said taught is, is a target, right? It's not a policy. It's not a, it's not a roadmap of how to get there, apart from, I assume, Chuck Moore no. the NHS. It's a difficult one. You know, I actually don't subscribe to the view that the opposition in a midterm has to come out with a thousand different policies, um, you know, to prove they're serious for government. They only really realistically have to do that six to 12 months out from a general election. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yes, that's on the horizon, but it is very much the horizon at the moment. Their role right now is to scrutinise and oppose government. I mean, they're literally the opposition. Yeah. I think it's a very easy criticism to say they're coming out with nothing and you know they're not they're not coming up with the solutions to tackle the problems of our age whereas mm. you know they're not in a position to do that and if they do and they're great policies who's to say that you know the current government just to just pick them up and claim them for their own and say all right yeah I have that in some form or another yeah and, and I think that you know that happens it uh, it's true and it's happened much more over the last 6 years with the Tories sealing stuff off Labour than it has, I feel like, I don't know, for a while. I don't, I don't feel like Tony Blair was nicking policies off IDS back in the day. You know? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I suspect not. Sorry, I was going to say, let's talk about the hecklers. The hard left <laughs> Tom that, that was still in the hall in, Labour Party, in the Labour Party conference. Yeah. Um, so throughout the speech, there was a fairly serious amount of heckling. Seven or eight people. It was yeah, it was a, it was a lot, and they were heckling kind of indiscriminately. At one point, they heckled during when he was talking about his mother's death, which he yeah, was linking was to you know his his time spent with kind of nurses and stuff in the NHS before he kind of came on to a long bit about why they should raise nurses' pay, which I think is a very solid Labour position to have. I think it's probably a fairly solid universal position at this point. Um, but, mm. you know, traditional Labour territory, isn't it? Um, 
And yeah, it was just hot the whole way through. And it provided for Keir Starmer a very stark contrast between him and the Corbynite left. Which is to say... Yes. And he said this directly. I saw this bit. Um, what do we want? Do we want, a, do we want slogans or do we want policies that are going to change people's lives? And that was his mm. rebuttal. Shouting slogans or policies that change people's lives. Yeah. If anything, it was helpful for him. All these yeah. actors were helpful because they were actually, they, they looked and sounded like lone voices mm-hmm. in amongst a crowd of people who were very willing to cheer him on. And it, the optics are basically, you know, he's <clears throat> he's batted back down the hecklers of the Corbyn era. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's nothing but useful. And yes, it shows a still divided Labour Party and everything else. But when when he's also saying things like he did a couple of days before his speech of I'm more interested in power than I am in unity, there will come a tipping point where the rest of the Labour Party goes, yeah, actually, you know, we're more interested in power than unity as well. One, one would hope just, so. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. They will just <laughs> end up going, right, he's the person to get us into power. And I wonder where that tipping point is, because a lot of the kind of, you know, Twitter leftist commentators that I follow were just saying, oh, terrible speech, you know, like, so boring, you know, this guy is just um, centre ground, you know, he's not going to radically change, you know, the the country or the, the world that we want to be in, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, it's not what he's setting out to do because people don't vote for that. Quite famously, no. people don't vote for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. They haven't done for a very long time. Um, so I think it's great. I think it's great that he's pulling Labour back into the centre, making them much more serious. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'm really happy with it. And you're right, Like it's going to be very interesting when we sit down to do this this time next week, our Tory conference, how does Boris combat it? What do they, you know, what do, they do? I mean, I would take the bet that Boris will... Um have some sort of joke about toolmakers in response to response to Keir's joke. Yes. Bet you 50 quid Sammy's got a joke on it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I like that. I'll take that bet. <laughs> <laughs> the one other thing I did want to say about Keir's speech um, is we are at the moment, and we'll come on to talk about this more later, in somewhat of a crisis in this country because of our supply chains. Okay? And I I think the Overton window of how the British public expects the government to perform has shifted so dramatically because of COVID, where it was out of their control, Mm. that we're now facing a real issue that government could get a handle on very quickly if they they so chose, which they are not doing, Mm. i.e. supply chains are absolutely fucked. Um... And I just don't, I don't know why Keir didn't make more of a big deal of that in his speech. That, like, we need to hold this government accountable for failing at fairly basic things now. Yeah, it, I, it's a difficult one. I mean, you could, you could go with the old, I think someone quoted this to me the other day, the old Napoleonic thing of never interrupt your enemies while they're making a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, do do you actually want to be associated with this crisis? Is is a valid question. You know, see see how it folds out, um, and then and then point it out as a as a massive failure of government. Mm. And I'm not just talking 
ministers. I'm also talking civil service, etc. Yeah, of course. You know, they could just pull it out of the bag and it's nowhere near as bad as they say or think it is. And it'll all be fine simply because there'll be enough market reaction to fill the void. I'm less certain about that. Mm -hmm. Well, does he not have a solution to the problem? I mean, that's the thing. What is the solution to the problem? I, I mean, I don't know what solution to the problem is, but I, I can tell you, you literally cannot buy fuel in London right now. So can you not? No. My, so my partner drives, and she's like about to dip into the red on the fuel gauge. She has to drive to work, but she doesn't really have. There's no public transport alternative, and uh, every morning when she commutes, uh, there is all there are lines of about two hundred cars for every petrol station. Wow. It's jamming up all the roads, and then they run out of petrol. Like that's that's what happens. So they're maybe they're getting deliveries, but. I, everyone is either still panic buying or is now getting in a position like her where they are genuinely about to run out of fuel. Yeah. There is no fuel. Interesting, because it's a different situation down here. You know, I would say a third to a half of the petrol stations are out or running out, but it is not a heightened crisis like it was at the oh. weekend, you know, when people weren't working. Yeah. Everyone was going to get fuel and everywhere was running out. Um, but it's not like that. And actually, all the... You know, all the clips in the news, they started off doing it around the country and then quickly realised they didn't need to, just London, concentrate on London. Yeah. Um, which is, from my perspective, you know, oh, fucking hell, another London story, I'm a bit bored. <laughs> I get that. I, I, it's interesting. I think maybe it is a London thing, but, like, it feels very real here. I'll tell you that much. Like, it's getting wow. to be a bit stressful that, you know, like, what happens? Apparently, um... Apparently the AA, the call-outs for people putting the wrong type of fuel in their car has gone up like 400% over the last week. As idiots are like, well, I can't get diesel, but let's try some petrol for a change. <laughs> I don't know at what point you oh, no. make that decision, knowing it's like the worst thing you can do. <laughs> Ruin your engine. Yeah. Um, that's the fuel situation, which we've kind of just tra transitioned into. Well, I saw a, a I saw a meme about all of this. Of, I think it went, some, someone sent it to me. It went along the lines of, "Oh, well, we had all this fuel that was going out today. We could have sold it to you on the cheap, but we, you know, we made we made sure there was a a fake crisis where everyone's now <laughs> going to buy the fuel at the high prices. And you know, secondly, now we can fill up the petrol stations with E10 instead of the old fuel. So oh. uh, you know, thanks for falling for it, <laughs> which I, I don't think is true. No, <laughs> it's so easy that these sorts of things can become essentially conspiracy theories. Yeah, well, everything's a conspiracy theory now, right? Because one of, one of the one of the the ideas that I've started paying more attention to, which is being propagated in like certain circles, I, I say Cummings is kind of pushing this a little bit and like other you know people a little I, bit oh I, I mean let me tell you what the theory is first um <laughs> and so it can have other kind of academic -y people i follow on twitter kind of starting to talk about this which is like the government just has no control over anything which i kind of agree with and i've always kind of believed right which is mm. you know when rishi or whoever is chancellor comes out and says we're going to do x y and z and it will fix the economy they have almost no control over the economy as a whole Really, like they they have little levers that they're pushing and pulling, but unless you massively change spending one way or another, which no government has really done, they've never massively changed spending. They've cut bits and bobs over the years and, and wound things down. They don't have that much control. So when it comes to something like this, 
and we expect the government to do something. Like I just said earlier, like I expect the government to do something. They just mm. can't because it's it's not real. Like it's it's barely there. You know, the civil service is barely functioning. The ministers don't know what the hell they're doing. No one knows what they're doing. Keir Starmer can't oppose it because he doesn't know what's going on either. Is it that? Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm starting to believe more in that, that this is all just a big, you know, collective imagination thing. <laughs> okay, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> The, the Donnick Cummings point, let's talk about that specifically, was that he knows people inside number 10 that have started buying generators for their houses. He advised people that subscribed to his newsletter to, uh, uh, what was it, basically have enough provisions that you could last for a month in the case of a huge supply chain shutdown towards the end of yeah. this year. He says in the next six months, we're going to have a complete crisis of all supply chains. Yeah. And this is just a precursor to it. And you said, is he the the fear-monger-in-chief? <laughs> I think I call him scaremonger-in-chief. Scaremonger-in-chief. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting. Like, if you, if you look at this point broadly, you know, who who was saying that sort of thing five years ago? And I say five years ago because that is just before the Brexit referendum. Yes. And it was the Remain side of life mm-hmm. who was saying that this will happen. You know, the problems will flow. Brexit is not all they say it is. It yeah. was literally the opposite number to Dominic Cummings saying this will happen. Dominic Cummings making the argument for Brexit, as we all know. Yes. So was Project Fear, <laughs> as it so quickly became, yes, just true? I think that's a really good question. I will say... Having having listened to and read a lot of what Dominic, Dominic Cummings has put out, especially over the last eighteen months or so, um, he his argument would be that there is a lot, there is a great opportunity with Brexit, of which our government has entirely failed to grasp any of, which has then mm-hmm. left us in this position. And it's, I think it's very easy to make that argument. Yes. Um, very very easy to make that argument. And you kind of come up against you know, a counterfactual view of life. What could have happened post-Brexit? And obviously, actually, the post-Brexit period, the immediate few years, were disastrous mm-hmm. because we had chaotic and unfunctioning government that was in a minority until December 2019. Yeah. Um, and you can, you can even pull this all the way back to all the way back to our beginning of Keir Starmer. You know, if, if the Labour Party... Keir Starmer had voted for Theresa May's Brexit deal, we would be in a soft Brexit situation. Mm-hmm. We would have some free movement of people. Yep. We would have individuals still driving lorries throughout the UK from the rest of Europe. Yeah. It would be totally different. You know, that is your counterfactual that it is a realistic possibility we could have had. Yep. And would that have avoided all of these problems? I think you're, the example you can look at where this has happened is Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. where they are still within the customs union single market whatever yeah. can't quite remember the facts but <laughs> they are not facing the co2 shortages because they mm. are supplied by europe and everything else you know it there was a realistic alternative post brexit that would have made us all feel better yes. <laughs> because brexit has happened um <clears throat> and wouldn't necessarily have caused this crisis and then you can you can 
you know, if I want to oppose myself, is this a problem just as the UK? Is it happening throughout Europe? We're told by ministers that this is happening throughout Europe. There is an HGV crisis throughout Europe. There is a supply crisis throughout the world. Um, I, I have no evidence that would point to that being true. No. I'm not sure that. I haven't looked isn't. hard. Well, I also have not seen it, Tom. This is the thing. I don't believe that France is having this same fuel supply shortage. And you know why I don't believe that? Because the French will be rioting the streets. Because they do. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I genuinely don't, don't think this is happening to the same scale. I think there are some supply chain issues. And I think COVID yeah. is the you know is obviously a factor in this. I um, I would never say that it wasn't because it has just so hugely changed the the way the world works. Um, and maybe we maybe that will bounces back to you know pre twenty twenty, but maybe it doesn't. But Brexit is clearly a factor, um, and we've seen that because the government's sticking plaster to fix this is more visas for HGV drivers. So they clearly believe that. The stopping of free movement is a factor in this. Otherwise, their sticky pasta solution would be different. Because industry is telling them that that is what has happened. Yes, There's I also it. don't necessarily believe all these all these reports saying that you know, oh, you can get eighty thousand pounds a year if you go and become an HGV driver. You then you then listen to phone in radio, which I do every now and then, um, and you have people ringing in who are in the industry and saying this is just nonsense, it's just not true. Yeah. You know, they're not paying any more than they were before. No, no, because the prices haven't yet gone up, right? No. Food, food prices remain fairly stable. Yes, like they have the normal kind of inflation attached to them, but they haven't spiked. Um, obviously, the government is fairly worried about that, as, you know, governments should be. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's... I'm thinking back to what Cummings has said. <laughs> Stockpile, get your own generator. This is going to get so much worse. Yeah. Do we think it is? You know, Christmas demand is phenomenal yep. year on year on year. And people are going to want a normal Christmas. Yes. Are they going to be able last to year a normal Christmas? Normal. No, it wasn't. Last year was awful. Yep. People didn't see their families. It was, you know, it was terrible. People will want a normal Christmas. I saw a headline the other day that apparently turkey farms are running into problems because they can't get enough staff yep. to rear the animals in time. Uh, so that's that's one good thing. Um, We're going to see a stockpiling of turkeys next. People are going to start buying frozen turkeys and then giant freezers to put them in. I was going to say, they'll need a huge freezer for a big giant turkey. <laughs> Two or three of them, yeah, they'll need a huge freezer. <laughs> that wouldn't fit in a, a drawer of my freezer. Um, yeah, it, it's, I don't know, uh, there's, a, like, there's always the focus on saving Christmas. I think it was yesterday's Sun front page was, you know, 27 days to save Christmas, you know, to get the supply chain sorted. I wonder if Boris will try and do a rabbit out of the hat situation at a conference next week. There are rumours of, of Rishi doing the same because furlough is coming to an end and Universal Credit Uplift is coming to an end as we discussed at length last week. There's rumours of him doing similar and, you know, having another bucket of cash to, you know, to spend on this stuff. But We'll see. And where's that coming from? Well, quite. Um, probably from uh, from our generation again, Tom. They'll find another way. <laughs> Let's yeah, talk go about Government that. borrowing has not declined year on year on the expectations. Government borrowing is still 
very high at the moment. Very, very high. Mm. And nobody cares right now. <laughs> no, not right now. And I, In an economic sense, I think I'm okay with that because we've just gone through a terrible crisis, the likes of which we really haven't seen for decades, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're still in that to a degree, although life feels much more normal now than it did even three months ago, I would say. Um, Except the fact you can't buy fuel around the corner from you. Well, yeah, there is that. <laughs> but I can now go and see my friends without worrying I'm going to kill someone's granddad in the process, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, 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 I mean, attached to it, you know, we've gone through a massive crisis. Um, the economic situation is what it is as a result of that. But I just don't think we have the social unity that usually follows from such a crisis. Yes, that is probably They called true. it a wartime situation, mm. but it wasn't the same. Actually, it was a very individualistic crisis to go through yeah. because everyone had to sit at home, yes. by and large. It, that is very interesting. Um, I often think about the one thing I learned at university, which I probably am now going to get wrong, <laughs> which is this idea of... Uh, post-structuralism that countries have to define themselves against an enemy they can't just they right. can't have their own definition of what they are it has to be defined against something else another ideology or whatever um and this and in a war that's what you get right because there is an enemy there is something to push back against yeah we're but not we, them but we're something else exactly but we didn't have that at all we just had people saying either Boris is doing a good job, it's a very tough time. Or, or other people saying, Boris has directly killed 250,000 people. There's, there was, you know, there's no in-between, I feel, on there that scale. There is no in-between, is there? Um, where, you know, some, people, some members of my family refused to engage in any criticism of Boris because they said it was an unbelievably tough time. I agree, it was an unbelievably tough time. I think it's okay to criticise the government's response a bit in certain aspects, although, you know... Well, if you... If, like, as as coming said in this, this thing, <laughs> we've got to get off the topic. But but he is kind of right. If you don't if you don't acknowledge there were mistakes made, then you just assume that there's no improvement that can be made. Yes. Um, and if you're not if you're not actually spending a little bit of time retrospectively looking at what went wrong, how are you going to prepare for the next crisis properly? Quite. Um, and, I, and I think that's that's true, and that's something that I, I feel like most organisations have now got. Um, you know, they celebrate failure because it means that they've made won't repeat the mistakes, right? That's something that most mm. organisations now champion. Or should do, anyway, because it's a, it's a smart product management skill, to be frank. Like, it's just what it is. Um, and yes, government just seems to be sticking their head in the sand. Yeah, they, they can't afford to lose an election in their eyes because it's ultimately all about power. It is. You know, we said it last week. What's the Conservative Party in the last 15 years been obsessed with? Power. Yes. And do with it what you will afterwards. And I don't know. Do a full circle back on what we first talked about. Mm. You know, Keir Starmer is now talking about power over unity. Let's talk about my prediction that a Conservative Minister would take the easy way out and say that people on Universal Credit should just go and get another job. Therese, Therese Coffey went on the radio and said exactly that. Thank you very well, much, Theresa. Well, Pension Secretary. Yeah, fantastic. Um, or Therese, <sighs> sorry, I should say, not Theresa. Um, yeah, she went on the radio and said exactly that and was obviously lambasted for it. Uh, she said, you yeah. know, it's only a couple of hours more work a week. And it's like, yes, but the point is that this is mostly being paid to people who are in work or who can't be in work for various reasons. Like, this is not... 
it's I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's our options for people. Like you don't. Most people don't choose to sit on universal credit. No, absolutely. Because they don't. I'll correct what I said last week when I when I, I I think I accidentally said that the majority of people on universal credit are working. I think there's about a third of people on universal credit are working at the same time. But it, it doesn't take away from the fact that the reason people are on universal credit is by and large because life is so complicated. There's a yes. whole load of things going on to the point where it is necessary. Um, so it's, it's not a, it's not a majority in work benefit, but a lot of people in work are on it. Yeah, I think it's a line that will play well with some elements of the Tory base. And I, I don't like. I don't think it's going to be a big deal. I don't think anyone's going to focus on it at the next election or whatever. But it, it's it's just an interesting highlight, given that we took quite a positive tone with how we thought the government, or also some conservatives were approaching it. We highlighted IDS, um, and actually, I just think that element of the party is still there. That just you know, if you're poor, you should work more. That's it. Done. What might be termed the nasty party? Oh, Tom, might call that's them. a great coinage. <laughs> but i think we've set some clear expectations of what of what we'd like to see out of boris's speech i.e he needs to clear the keir starmer bar he needs to mention or not mention the word tool in it um and yeah yeah, a bit more vision because otherwise i think it will fall fairly flat if it's just another uh, conference, I have a brick speech. I don't think that's going to cut it. And there's a deep cut from about 2015-16 for anyone that remembers that speech. No, I, I remember it. I think you're absolutely right. You know, that he, he like every good politician, is very good when not in government. And yes. you know, now you're in government. <laughs> it's actually not... It's not good enough. <laughs> yeah, you need to have some vision, don't you? Cameron was always good at that. He was always good at the vision in conference speeches, pulling society together, but, you know, helping small businesses and, you know, keeping an individualistic kind of view. I always liked his... The the heady days. His speeches, (laughs) oh, such heady days. I don't think we mentioned David Cameron at all on last week's podcast, Tom. This is that. That's a real shocker. We need to make sure we shoehorn him in in every single time. Well, we didn't even mention Blair, despite the fact we should have done from Starmer's speech. (laughs) Didn't Starmer have a line like, I, I, education is so important, I am inclined to mention it three times? Yeah, and it, actually, if, if, if he did, it was quite a good line, actually. Um, but yeah, I, I would say Starmer's speech was the, the first time that there has been an open and proper uh, acknowledgement of the successes of the Blair Brown years since 2010. Mm. For Miliband, it was too soon, and everyone was still going, "Well, you know, you lot spent all our money." Corbyn was never <laughs> going to do it, and this is the no. first time we've had a leader of the Labour Party saying and telling everyone about the successes. Now that is potentially dangerous for the Conservative Party because if he goes round for the next few years reminding everyone of the good things that the last Labour government did, which is something that hasn't happened for the last 11 years, then people might go, oh, do you know what? Actually, let's give them another go. Yeah. I think you're spot on. Uh, Yeah, thank you very much for listening to The Open Conservative Project with me, Tom and Sam. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been a little bit ranty. Uh, <laughs> that's that's what you get for half eight in the morning just before work yeah,
Jesus é se amar.